0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living.
1: He wasn't going to let differences like race, politics, religion, and gender get in the way of the work of the gospel. And of course, we're living in a time that this is perfect for, right? We're living in a time where, where all of those things can become an issue. And our nation is as divided as our nation can possibly be, especially politically.
0: We are so glad you tuned into Practical Christian Living, where we teach God's Word simply, and we talk about how to apply it to our everyday lives. We are in our series, Jesus Appointments, looking at Jesus' individual and divine appointments with groups and individuals when He walked here on this earth. Today, we are studying one of the most famous and profound Jesus Appointments ever. There is so much for us to learn from the Samaritan woman at the well especially during this politically divisive season we're in. Stay with us. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. We're in John chapter four.
1: We thank you that you have provided for us, that you have called us to be here as a church, and then you provide for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be able to do as much as we can do with the finances that you have provided for us as a church that we would reach more people in Tucson. We thank you for the radio station. We thank you for our school. We thank you for the, the bridge home, the Calvary Bridge home. We just thank you for all of the things that you are expanding and doing. We ask that uh, we would do more. We wanna be faithful in the call that you've given us in our lives. We also ask that you would bless this Bible study. Your word is rich, it is deep, it is powerful, it is meaningful, it is profound. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us as we take time to study together today in the name of Jesus. Today we are looking at the Samaritan appointment. It is that familiar text, as Jesus meets with the woman at the well. I had said in the introduction that this is the quintessential appointment. This is the one when we think of Jesus having appointments with people, we think about him going out of the way to Samaria to have the appointment with this woman. And in order to understand how significant this was and exactly what Jesus was doing, we need to understand a few things. First of all, there was a racial difference, a religious difference, a political difference, and a gender difference, which was significant in their day. Women were marginalized in the Jewish culture in the days of Jesus. Samaritans were marginalized in the culture that they were living in. The Samaritans lived in an area all to themselves. They had several cities that were in the area of Samaria. One of them was Samaria itself, the city of Samaria. You remember that there had been a civil war in Israel hundreds of years before this. We had a civil war not quite 200 years ago. And and our, our civil war divided our nation, but then our nation came back together again. Their civil war divided their nation and Israel became two. They became the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. The headquarters of Judah was Jerusalem. The headquarters of Israel was Samaria. And Samaria, when Israel, the 10 northern tribes, got taken captive by the Assyrians, the Assyrians took Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, captive 125 years before Nebuchadnezzar took the southern kingdom of Judah captive. They were all both on their way of being taken out of the land. They were both going to be removed because God was doing something and correcting them before he brought them back into the land, which way they would come back into the land as one. But before Judah was taken by Nebuchadnezzar, Israel Israel was taken by the Assyrians. In that day when you conquered a land, you planted people in that country. It was now your territory. You conquered it. It was yours. So you planted people there. So they planted Assyrians in the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. And those Assyrians that were planted there from the nation of Assyria, they intermarried the Jewish people that were left behind. There was a smaller group of Jewish people that were left behind, and they intermarried with them. And so the descendants of them became known as Samaritans. They weren't Assyrians. They weren't Jewish. They were Assyrian and Jewish. They weren't received by the Assyrians, and they weren't received by those who were Jewish. On top of that, living in their area and becoming isolated, they began to worship the gods of the Assyrians. And in 2 Kings, you can read about this. And that God began to cause difficulties for the Samaritans because they were worshiping false gods in Israel. And so they built their own temple. They didn't quite do what God wanted them to do, which was to become part of the system, to begin to worship him, to follow the law. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They hired priests and they kind of had a It would be like a cult today. You have true Christianity, and then you have cults that look like Christianity, but we know there's significant differences there. There was true Judaism in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans built their temple, this was a false worship. It wasn't true. It was false. There were a lot of problems with it. You could spend a lot of time talking about the different things the Assyrians did. Part of it was they twisted their worship of Assyrian gods and they made that kind of a catch-all worship on Mount Gerizim. So they're, they're different, different people. They are different religiously. They are also different politically. The Samaritans did not put themselves under the authority of the Sanhedrin. They got their own group of men that they called rulers. And they were ruled by them. So they were racially different. They were religiously different. They were politically different. And also, as I said, women were marginalized in their day in Israel. In the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, a lot of that had gone away. Although in the Roman culture, you were still owned by your husband. Your Roman husband owned you if you were a woman. In Israel, certain men would not, certain Jewish men would not talk to their wives in public. They believed that they were so much better than them. There's a Jewish prayer that was prayed in the days of Jesus and is still prayed today, by the way, by some Jewish men daily, by some Orthodox Jewish men who feel this way today. They would pray, Lord, thank you that I was not born a Gentile, that I was not born a slave, and that I was not born a woman. And so you see how they felt in their culture Now, Jesus, well, let's read the first three verses here and we'll see something. First four verses, we'll see something. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Jesus's ministry had become more successful than John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed to the Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria. Now, when you read that, you might just think this is a matter of of the way that Israel's laid out, that you have the Galilee, you've got uh, the, the Judean wilderness, and Jesus has to go through Samaria to get there. But when you look at a map, or if you understand how it's laid out, you know that it's out of the way. Jesus is in the Judean wilderness. He needs to go to the Galilee. But before that, he needs to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through there? There was a woman at a well he needed to meet with. There was a whole group of Samaritans who were going to receive him as the Messiah and he wanted to go through that region. He wanted to break through those barriers, those race barriers. He wanted to break through those religious barriers. He wanted to break through the gender barriers of their day. He wanted to break through the religious barriers and he wanted to build a stronghold in Samaria. Most Jewish men would not have done that. Most Jewish rabbis wouldn't have done that. In fact, I think it's not a stretch to say that Jesus was the only guy who would have done it. Nobody else would do it. But he wasn't going to let differences like race, politics, religion, and gender get in the way of the work of the gospel. And of course, we're living in a time that this is perfect for, right? We're living in a time where where all of those things can become an issue. And our nation is as divided as our nation can possibly be, especially politically. And sometimes we let our political views stop our effectiveness in sharing Christ. We wanna make sure we don't do that. Our first call is for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our first and highest call. And if we use our platforms, to push a political point of view, especially that, that looks down or that puts down someone on the opposite side, you are now cutting them off from hearing from you. One more thing before we get into Jesus' interaction with this woman. We have, a, uh, we have an example of evangelism from Jesus here. We may struggle with evangelizing. We may struggle with bringing up the topic of Jesus and giving your life to Him and being saved. But Jesus gives us an example here and I love it. It's a great example. We're gonna learn so much from it. So verse five says he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his sons Joseph. These were Jewish people as well. They had Jewish, they had a Jewish background and they were very proud of the fact that they had a well from Jacob there. It says, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat at the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. It's the heat of the day. And a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Why was she there at noon? Well, may, maybe it's the only time she could get there. Who knows? But probably because she didn't want to run into the other women that were in Sychar, the city that she was in. We'll see why here in a few minutes. Jesus said to her, and I love this way of opening up a conversation. Remember, she comes to the well. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. She's Samaritan. He's a man. She's a woman. And she's going to come and get water, and ignore him. She sees him. She probably thinks, what's a Jewish guy doing here? And Jesus says, give me a drink. That's how he opened it up. Give me a drink. I, I love that. I, I, maybe he even said it with a little bit of a smile. This is going to blow her mind. Give me a drink. And she immediately catches on. She immediately, there is tension between Samaritans and Jews, and she has that tension. She's been ignored. She's been marginalized. She's been mistreated by Jewish men before. And so she says, it says, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asks from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews would not deal at all with them. In fact, when when the Pharisees want to insult Jesus in John chapter eight, they say to him, now we know that you are a Samaritan. And Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan to blow him away, that a good Samaritan would do a good thing above what priests and other people in Israel would do. And so she, she has that tension. Jesus doesn't have it. Give me a drink. She's got it. How do you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? Jesus' response to her, he immediately begins to deal with the truth. He deals with what she needs, which is what the Messiah came to bring. Jesus answered and said to her, if you had known the gift of God and who it was who speaks to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water you would know who we. are. Maybe she was interested in the Messiah. Maybe even though she's nowhere near a perfect woman, she's interested in looking for the Messiah. I believe that people can be, people can be oppressed by sin. How else do we explain the way that Jesus interacted with people who were very sinful? The woman caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus was very compassionate to her. I I believe that sin is, is so powerful. It's such a powerful pull that many people get oppressed by sin. And Jesus had compassion on those people who had had their lives completely destroyed by sin. And so he says to this woman, if you knew who it was, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. Well, she's still got this tension. She's snarky. She's sarcastic. Look at her response. The woman said to him, sir. You have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Today she would have put it in quotes. Where are you going to get this living water? (laughs) Right? That's what she's saying. And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them, he will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Jesus has now breached the topic of eternal life. He says, if you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again, but drink of the water that I give you and it's going to spring up in you into everlasting life. When we come to Jesus and drink, eternal life springs up inside of us. We are given that gift. Our spirits come alive and we are given that gift. What an amazing picture of salvation. It's also been said that you could write above any experience in life drink of this water and you will thirst again, but drink of the water that I give you and you will never thirst again. What you really need, what is going to be that final thing that satisfies you is drinking of the water that Jesus brings. Jesus said on the day that the drink offering was given in the temple, if any of you come, it's the Bible says he cried it out. He actually stood up and cried this out. If any of you come unto me and drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit that would be given. That if we would come unto Jesus and drink, that out of us was going to flow the Holy Spirit into the lives of people around us. And so the woman, still snarky, still sarcastic, the tension is still there, the, the racial differences between the Samaritans and the Jews, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst nor come down here to draw. She's still making fun of him. I want some of this living water so I'm not thirsty and so I don't have to come down here and get water. Now Jesus is about done with her snarkiness. (laughs) And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Notice all of it's gone. All of the sarcasm, all of the tension leaves this woman. The woman answered him, I have no husband. What happened to your cute little quippy answers that you were given to Jesus? (laughs) I have no husband, all of a sudden. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. Thus you spoke truly. Jesus isn't coming down on her because of her sinful lifestyle. He's pointing out that he knows everything about her. And Jesus knows everything about us. And even though he knows every sin we've ever committed, everything we've done we've ever been ashamed of, anything we've ever felt remorse over and would change if we could do it again, Jesus knows it all and still offers us eternal life and still loves us. And I'll remind you again of the compassion that he had on sinful people. A doctor doesn't come to the well, but he comes to those who are sick. And so Jesus said, I haven't come for the righteous, but I've come for the sinner. And if you see yourself in that category, maybe your life has even come undone because of sin in your life, or maybe your life has hit a major speed bump because of sin in your life, know that you are just the kind of person that Jesus loves and that Jesus wants to pour out his love on. The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive you're a prophet.'" Suddenly she changes. All all of a sudden now she gets spiritual. And even though she had been bound in sin and sin had taken advantage of her, that doesn't mean she's not responsible. I want to make sure that I'm careful with the wording. I just believe sin captures people and it's so strong that people get trapped by sin. And I think Jesus had compassion on people that were trapped by sin. And that might be you and me, maybe if not now, at some point in our lives, we were trapped by that. And that Jesus, even though she has been oppressed by sin, she's still interested in spiritual things. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. It reminds me when I was on an airplane one time and I sat down next to a guy and we said, hi. And then he's looking through a magazine. It was the airline magazine that was there. And he came across the picture and a girl with a bikini. And he held it up and goes, look at that. That's what I'm talking about. So I look at him like, okay. And uh, I, so I asked him, hey, what do you do? And he told me. Then out of almost just being polite, he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and he says, he says, praise God, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> I uh, just, and then we talked about spiritual things, by the way, the rest of the time. So this woman says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He just told her about her own life that he knows. And um, she said, our fathers worship on Mount Gerizim and the Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. This opens up an opportunity for Jesus to begin to talk down the worship of Mount Gerizim. It's wrong. It is, it is more of a cult than anything. They have hired priests and they are not doing things properly. And Jesus could easily go, let me tell you why what you do on Mount Gerizim is wrong. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't get caught up in the minutia of trying to get her to defend what she believes. Understand what I'm saying. Sometimes when we meet somebody who is perhaps a, Uh, a a Mormon or an atheist or a Jehovah witness or an agnostic. We attack what they believe, thinking that that's going to give us an inroads for them to get saved. They get defensive. And a lot of times that digs them in. They're now defensive over what they believe and they're not going to listen to what you're saying because you have attacked what they believe. It's not that we're not to say that that is not the way. Atheism isn't the way, agnosticism isn't the way, cults aren't the way. It's just sometimes we get caught down in the minutiae of telling people everything that they believe that is wrong. I'm not saying no one's got saved that way because God can do whatever God wants to do, right? And, and I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit might not lead you that way because I've always said the most important thing of evangelism is that you are led by the Holy Spirit, but as a basic principle, you don't want to put people on the defensive. You don't want to attack people. It's a basic principle in sales as well, but I really don't want to compare evangelism to sales because we're not trying to sell people something. But one of the things you learn when you're in sales is you don't put down things that people have or or even if it's something different than what you're selling, you promote your product over instead of attacking what they have and making them get defensive. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He doesn't do it. He corrects her. He, He gives her a little bit. In verse 21, he said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that worship the Father. You and be the place. I love that the way he comes back, he goes, the day's coming when this isn't going to be important. You guys are worshiping there on Mount Gerizim and we're in Jerusalem. Day's coming, it's not important. But then he says, You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So, so he's honest with her. Look, what you're doing on, on Mount Gerizim, you don't know, you don't understand. But he didn't get caught up in the minutia of having to tell them everything. I've fallen into this trap before when I get visited by Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. I did a whole bunch of research on what Mormons believe. I did a whole bunch of research on what Jehovah Witnesses believe. And then when they would come to my door, I'd let them have it. <laughs> and we would sit there and argue. Now, none of them ever got saved by doing that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen again. I've heard of people that get saved by these kind of things, but it doesn't work for me. It immediately turns it defensive. And and I don't want them to be defensive. I want them to be open to what Christ is all about. And so Jesus then says, verse 25, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The hour's coming when it's not about where you worship, it's about what's going on inside your heart the temple in Jerusalem was doing things the right way, biblically. They were following the Old Testament law, but their hearts were all messed up and they weren't serving God either. So you can do the right thing, but if you rely on it being the right thing and don't have a a spiritual relationship with Christ, it means nothing. If you're worshiping that in a way that is wrong, but you develop a right relationship with God, then sooner or later, God's going to bring you out of that. God's going to bring you to the truth because it's not only in spirit, it's in spirit and in truth. That you're sincere, that you're honest, that you say to God, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live the way that you want me to live. And Jesus himself said, if you are weary and if you are tired, come unto me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've often said that I think that evangelicalism fights against what Jesus wants to do because sometimes we want to put heavy burdens on people. We want to put heavy yokes on people. We want them to live the way we want them to live, not the way God wants them to live. I just want to, I want to study the scriptures. I want to know what God wants from me. I'm not interested in any agenda you have for me. And you should just want to live the way God wants you to live. You should want to know what I have to say as I'm teaching the Word of God about what He wants, but you should not be interested in any personal agendas I have.
0: We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com.